One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I have just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Very much. There is a picture um, on the screen that's coming up next of multiple book titles. Now, what is it that these books here have in common? If you have the answer, please raise your hand. <laughs> Everyone's shy. Is there something in common? Marion, Marion, what is it that you see these books have in common? They're on a journey, that's a great link. Yeah, that's not the one I'm looking for right now, but I really like that one. <laughs> Somebody else, what style of writing maybe do these books have in common? Any ideas, any ideas, yes. They are allegories, that is amazing. I only really learned that word this week, thank you. So I'm glad you knew it already. Um, so I found out that the passage we're looking at today is an allegory, and I thought, well, what is an allegory? So I'm glad you've asked that question, because the um, World Wide Web, my place for all research, um, has defined an allegory as a literary device 
used to express large, complex ideas in an approachable manner. Allegory allows writers to create some distance between themselves and the issue that they are discussing, especially when those issues are strong critiques of political or social realities. In other words, it's the story behind the story. Now, if you were here last Sunday and able to join us for one of Ed's sermons, you would have heard him unpack Luke chapter 11. This was a passage about the six woes. It really was quite an awkward dinner conversation where Jesus was very direct with his strong critiques on how his host, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were living. At the end of chapter 11, we read, when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. That was the last time that we saw Jesus at the house of the Pharisees. Now, it's very possible that the people here at this meal in chapter 14 are the very same Pharisees and experts in the law that he spoke to and about and who really said they felt insulted by him back at their last dinner party. It seems that Jesus doesn't avoid these, these folk after this woeful encounter that they've had. Rather, he finds himself here just a few pages later, eating at the home of one of the prominent Pharisees, being, as verse one says, carefully watched. My stomach sinks as I think about how he must have felt walking into that den of lions. I like to imagine that because Jesus is a brilliant and a wise teacher, and that he's probably got a good sense of humor and feeling out the room, that maybe he decided to use a different tact this time. Instead of the more direct woes of Luke chapter 11, he opted here for an allegory. Even for Jesus, sometimes the less direct approach might feel more appropriate. So, the question for us here today, as we look at this passage, is what is Jesus trying to express to these Pharisees, and in turn to us here today by way of this allegory? So I've created a table of sorts. This really was to help me as I unpack this passage, but I hope it'll be helpful for you as well. So this is gonna be a roadmap of where we are going in our session together this morning. So as we look at the, the story at face value in that first column there, we realize that the banquet, another word, a party, a feast, a big dinner celebration, it was hosted very probably by a generous master who by following the customs of that day would have sent out two invitations. The first one announced the event. I guess it's like our save the date that we send out to people. And then the second one is the ringing of the dinner bell. Okay, grab up, come on out, come and eat with us. We are told that firstly, the wealthy were invited, but they made excuses at the last minute. 
when the bell rang to actually show up, they decided they didn't want to come. So instead, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, and those outside of the city, on the roads and in the country, were invited. As we dig a layer deeper now and look at this allegory, what is the meaning here for these first century Pharisees and teachers of the law? Well, what does the banquet refer to? This is a picture of what in other places in the Gospels is referred to as the kingdom of God. This is freedom from the hold of the law. This is the invitation to the enjoyment of the promised Messiah who would usher in the rule and the reign and the system of doing life that the world was in such desperate need of. Who is the host? The host is God, the one who is generous and extravagant, and he is over all and he is in all, and at the same time desperate to lead and walk alongside his people. As we consider the sending out of the invitation, we remember that in Israel's history, God's first invitation to life and his people came from Moses and the prophets back in the Torah. And then the second invitation came from his son, Jesus. The guests, the first round of guests invited were the Jews. These were known to be God's chosen people. The religious leaders and the experts in the law accepted that first invitation gladly. It was commonly believed that they were God's chosen people, that they were set apart and favored by him. But they insulted God by refusing to accept his son. They came up with all kinds of excuses. Success, wealth, responsibility, settling down. All of them seeming harmless in and of themselves but all of them used as reasons to reject Jesus. So the invite was extended to the poor, crippled, lame, and blind, those in the alleys. Many scholars believe that here, Jesus is referring to the peripheral or the non-Orthodox Jews. I guess the equivalent of our Christmas and Easter Christians. And then the third group, those in the roads and the country lanes, refers to the Gentiles, everyone who wasn't a Jew, probably most of us here today, the unclean, the unchosen, the sinners, them. And it's to these last two groups of people, the ones that didn't have complicated excuses, of more important busyness that do land up feasting around the table. But what does this mean for you and I here today? Well, the banquet is the gathering, it's the celebration, it's the feasting on the fullness of life with the host. Life with God, life with his followers, life with the community of believers, both in eternity when we breathe no more, as well as 
in those aspects of this life that we get to taste him and enjoy community this side of death. It's the freedom and the security and the extravagance of life to the full with God today. God sent his servant son, Jesus, to a whole world of needy people to tell us that God's kingdom had arrived and is ready for us now. And in dying on the cross, he took the place for our sins and made a way for us to sit at the table. In his book, A Meal with Jesus, Tim Chester makes the point that Jesus was both a man of mission and a man of methodology. His mission, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, we we read in Luke 19. That was his mission. That's what he came to do. And as we read in Acts chapter two about another servant, when Jesus went to heaven, he gave us the gift of his spirit, the one that never tires of reminding us that the invitation still stands, that there is still space at the table. So who is invited? I'm invited, you're invited. And once we accept our invitation, then we can turn around to those closest to us and get to partner with Christ and partner with the Spirit to be servants in extending the invite to them as well. But we make excuses, busyness, priorities of really good things, but busyness. Or some of us maybe feel like we're not worthy of an invite. If he really sees me, if he sees that thing, that attitude, that heart, he won't want me around his table. Let me clean that up first, and then I'll go near God. And we don't invite others sometimes, maybe because we don't think they'll come. Maybe we think that in their eyes, Maybe faith is old-fashioned or uncool. Maybe sometimes, if we're honest, we don't think that they're worthy of an invite. Not like me. Maybe we don't want them sharing in our life of church, in our cool church friends. We want to keep them separate away from this stuff that is transforming and humbling me. So Jesus was a man of a mission, but he was also a man with a methodology. The scripture tells us that the son of man came eating and drinking. This was his methodology, I love that. I love to eat and drink. This is how he did his mission. And in the culture where Jesus was, when people were hostile to the good news of the widely available kingdom of God, to all that Jesus was declaring, how did he walk people into the kingdom? One meal at a time. That was his method of evangelism. In every culture, wherever you're from, meals are used to bring people together. But unfortunately, sometimes they are also used to keep people apart. 
I think of in apartheid South Africa where there were signs on restaurant, restaurant doors that said whites only. Or even here in England, the signs that said no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Even in our open-minded culture here in London today, we might not put signs on our doors or in our windows. Yet most of us, if we're honest, we still eat our meals with people who are like us, who fall within the same socioeconomic status and ethnicity as us. And this was true of the first century Jews too. So some exciting biblical context for us. I love this, and I always assume you guys want to hear it as well, so I'm going to share this with you. Back in Exodus, when the Jews had been taken into exile, the temple, their place of worship, it was destroyed. The sacrificial system was destroyed along with it, and the priesthood was wiped out. Can you imagine? So this body of people who were desperate to worship God, they were trying to figure out how to obey the commands with no temple, no sacrificial system, and no priesthood. So the rabbis, they came up with a new framework. They said, your home is your new temple. Your table is your new altar. The father in the house is the new priest, and the meal is the new sacrifice. But then the Pharisees came along with another idea, that if all of Israel would just hold to the Torah teaching for one day, that would unlock something. And the Messiah would come back, and exile would be ended, and the kingdom of God would be ushered in. So what they did was they called for every Jew to live by the commands that had been given to the priests in the temple. Now this seems like a good idea, but what that actually meant in reality was that no Gentile was ever allowed in your house, much less around your table. Neither was anyone who was deformed. Neither was anybody, it's, it's awful, anyone who had any special needs, and definitely not anyone who was a sinner. In essence, a rabbi or a teacher of the law or any good, respectable Jew would never be caught dead at the table of somebody like these that this host was inviting to his banquet. But Jesus. As we've seen over the sermon series, Luke's gospel is full of accounts of Jesus at the table of sinners, like Levi, like Zacchaeus, like that prostitute with her oil. Dozens of times in the gospels, Jesus was found at the table of these sinners. And according to the New Testament scholar Robert Charis, throughout the gospel of Luke, Jesus was either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And most of those meals were with people of ill repute. One theologian wrote, Jesus got himself killed because of the people he ate with. For Rabbi Jesus, meals were never about setting people apart. But they were a sign of God's welcome into his kingdom. Not a way of keeping people out, but a way to invite people 
in. And you and I are here today because most of us have come to experience Jesus' call of life to the full in the reality of the kingdom of God. We're already at the banquet. And God has put a love in our heart for our neighbor, our dad, our brother-in-law, our niece, our coworker, our barista, the person who we work at next to at the gym, even those we find really hard to get along with. Dan Allender writes, we are called to bless those who love us and those who love to do us harm. Both groups escort us to the banquet of God, served on the cross for those who are not ashamed to be beggars and even less ashamed to be called sons and daughters of God. So really practically, how do we invite people to come along with us as we follow Jesus? to experience the life that we love and we enjoy in a culture setting where, as David Kinnaman in his book, Faith for Exiles, says, today, if somebody unironically drops the Bible says in a media interview, they sound as if they have just disembarked from a time machine. So we feel weird and we feel awkward talking about Jesus. So one option is we just don't. We turn our homes into a castle, we keep our faith private, and when we're in public, we put our heads down about what we believe. Another option is that we edit the teachings of Scripture and of Christ, just to update it for our current cultural context. Take out all the bits maybe that are not PC. Or option C is the method of Jesus that we see modeled here. So if his method of evangelism was the meal, what can you and I do? Well, as a starting point, open our homes. If you don't have one, be like Jesus and invite yourself over to somebody's home. Or invite them with you to the local pub. And when you get there and you're seated at the table, eat a meal together, a long, simple meal. Spend time with people and people that perhaps are no no good, upstanding religious leader would be caught dead with. And talk, talk small talk, but also talk about the meaning of life and ask questions and listen, really, really listen to where they are right now, not where you feel they should be or where you are. And love people. Invite them to experience the life that is now normative for you in the kingdom. That's it. And eating and drinking like this is what is called hospitality. This comes from the root word Love of the stranger, or the refugee, or the outcast, or the immigrant, or the guest. The New Testament commands us to practice hospitality in 1 Peter 4. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Shame, I love without grumbling, because sometimes it is hard. 
Hebrews 13 says, do not forget to show hospitality to a stranger, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And this could feel so radical, but it's also incredibly ordinary. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosa Butterfield wrote the following, those who live radically ordinary hospitality see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on the face of the earth. They see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of God's kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know that the gospel comes with a house key. It's key to highlight here that hospitality is not the same as entertainment. It's not a picture-perfect image from Jamie Oliver's cookbook with a Michelin-star meal served on perfectly matching crockery. I recognize many of us have small dining room tables, if we even have a table. But the aim isn't to entertain. John Mark Homer does great teaching on this, and he helps us to distinguish the difference between entertainment and hospitality. And really quickly, he says, entertainment is about exclusion. You invite the in crowd, those on the social hierarchy that are important, whereas hospitality is about inclusion, an open table where all are welcome. Entertainment is about performance, showing off my interior design, my new cooking skills, the gadget that I got for Christmas in my kitchen. Whereas hospitality is about service, tangible love. Entertainment has a clear line between the host and the guest. But for Jesus, when he went to a meal, he was both the host and the guest. He came to give and receive. That's what happens at connect groups. That's what happens at robes. That's what happens at the breakfast club. You play the role of both the host and the guest. Entertainment is sporadic. It's an event on the calendar marked out months before, whereas hospitality is spontaneous. And in fact, it's a heart posture that is continually looking to connect with people. Entertainment is an act of reciprocity. I have you over, you have me over. Hospitality is an act of giving that expects nothing in return because the giving is itself a gift. And entertainment is a marker of the stratification of our society. You move up or down the social ladder depending on what party you're at, whereas hospitality is about justice for the poor, to bring others into life in the kingdom of God. And when we confuse these two, then we start to come up with excuses. My house is messy. My house is always messy. Get my kids to clean it up or put stuff in the other room and shut the door. I can't cook. There's Google. There's cook. There's all kinds of ways that we can shortcut. It's not about the meal. 
My kids are so noisy and demanding. Make them hot dogs, let them join in the conversation or put them in the next room with a movie for an hour or two. I don't have a table. Well, what about the cafeteria at work at lunchtime or the pub down the road? Or do you know Gail's on a Sunday morning at about eight o'clock is so quiet, especially the outside bit. Perfect table. Scholars argue that around the table was how the gospel spread. Not with internet or Instagram or celebrity preachers. It spread around the table with bread and wine. To our detriment, we've lost this in our hyper-individualistic culture where our mantra, if we're honest, is a man's house is his castle. It's got the moats and it's got the walls to keep people out. What if we were to rather recapture this radically ordinary hospitality to join Jesus in his mission to seek and save the lost? In closing, let us be intentional, persistent, and generous in sharing the good news of Christ as Christ himself is with us. The beauty of this invitation is this is already something we're doing. Most of us eat two or three times a day, four or five for some of us a day. That's 20 to 25 times a week that we can invite people to hospitality. How about we take what we are already doing and repurpose it for the kingdom? Maybe a breakfast before work, maybe on the lunch break, maybe at happy hour on the way home. As Jamie mentioned earlier, on the way out of church today, there's gonna be some Christmas flyers for us to take. You can take and give those to whoever you want to invite to the kingdom of God. Why not invite your neighbor or the person sitting across from you at work? And then when you're talking to them, maybe throw in an invite to a meal. So together you can sit and taste a bit of the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. Shall we pray? Oh God, we thank you for your generosity and the way that you have lavished that on us. We thank you that you sent your servant and that you have tirelessly wooed us to you. Thank you that you wanna celebrate with us, that you wanna live life to the full with us. And God, as we experience that, God, we pray that you burn deep in us a heart and a love and a desire for our neighbors too, that they could come and sit at your table, feast in your presence, and enjoy you for all that you are. I pray that you give us courage, that you give us excitement, um, you give us your eyes and heart for your people and for ourselves. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus, amen.